This evening comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 12, as we read verses 1 through 25. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbaal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. 
For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths in our hearts this evening. Let's pray. In your kindness and grace, O God, meet us here tonight. Send your spirit to stir up our hearts to love so that our gaze is firmly fixed on you and your gospel for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Tonight's passage brings us to a momentous moment in the life of Israel where in order for them to move on, they're going to have to address a very serious failure in its immediate history. Because not only is Israel living in the aftermath of calling for a king, but it's actually been told that its request for a king like all the nations was sinful. And so God now has confronted them, he's spoken to them, he's addressed this issue directly, and now the moment comes where the change of authority is happening. Um, Samuel is old, Um, his ministry's drawing to an end, he can't do this forever. It's just like we saw in our Old Testament reading, we see Moses. Moses can't rule Israel forever, and the same thing goes for Samuel. And we know that Saul has already begun to function as the king. He already came to the rescue of, of the people of, uh, of Joash, uh, Jabesh Gilead last week. And so we, we see that he's already doing the functions of a king. But, but you also may remember that this victory didn't happen because Saul's such a great guy, because he's such a natural leader, because he's so charismatic Now, we found out that the reason that it worked rescuing Jabesh Gilead was because God was with him. And God chose to use Saul as his instrument to save his people. And so the setting for this moment tonight is that Samuel says, let's go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So that's what happened before. And at the end of the passage last week, it says, there they made Saul king before the Lord at Gilead. So that was last week. And so the speech tonight by Samuel is his speech of renewal, right? That's what they said. Let's go and let's renew the covenant with with God. Let's renew the kingdom there. And so that's what this is. This is a renewal speech. This is a speech that is intended to give new life to Israel. Now, when we talk about renewal, when we talk about recovery, we're talking about a term that doctors use. Uh, They use this term, uh, renewal or recovery, right? The goal of recovery is not for someone to get bigger and stronger. The goal is simply for renewed health. We want them to improve. We want them to be better off than they were when they came to see the doctor. And Israel needs that tonight. They need renewal. They need recovery. They need to come back from this dark mark in its history. Um, But Israel isn't unique in this sense, right? Because if you ask the question, who is Israel today? The answer is the church, right? The church of Christ has been engrafted into Israel and is, in a sense, it's the analog of Israel. When we're reading the Old Testament, we're reading things that apply to the church today. And that's what happens in a passage like this. 
And so just like Israel needs to be renewed by God's grace, the church needs it too. The church needs to be renewed by God's grace. Harry Reader has a ministry that he runs out of Briarwood Presbyterian Church, and it's called Embers to Flame. And in that ministry, Embers to Flame, he focuses on this precise need in local churches about the need for churches to recover, uh, about church renewal. That's his focus. And for churches to be renewed, one of the things that Harry talks about, actually he had three things he talks about, is churches need to remember, they need to repent, and they need to recover. These are the three things Harry Reader talks about. In other words, uh, they need to remember. Churches need to connect with their own past. They need to understand how they got where they are. Then they also need to repent, he says. Usually, one of the things Harry Reader points out is that a declining church has something that it's made an idol of, something that it is placed above God, and something that it's placed above God's word. And they have to repent of those things, but to repent of them, they have to find them out, which is painful. And then he also says churches need to recover. But what he means is they need to recover the first things. They need to recover the gospel, the thing that gave them their core, the thing that gave them their focus, the thing that gave them their life in the first place. That gospel that once invigorated the church needs to become part of its core and its mission once again. And Samuel does something very much like that in this speech here at Gilgal, because Because like many church leaders, Samuel wants to see the church of Israel renewed. He wants to see them remember what God has done. He wants them to see them remember where the sin is that's happening and who is to blame. And he wants them to respond by repenting. And he especially wants the people of Israel to go back to the first things that defined and gave them their strength to begin with. That's why he points them back to so much of their history. And we'll see this tonight in the three points. Samuel vindicated, God's grace indicated, and Israel dedicated. Samuel vindicated, God's grace indicated, Israel dedicated. So let's see what God has to say about renewing his people here tonight as we see his own plan for calling these wayward people back to faithful discipleship. First, we see Samuel vindicated. In the first five verses of our reading, Samuel is really at pains to make sure that whatever else happens, he wants to make clear nobody has a valid accusation against him. Um, He hasn't used his position to gain money. He hasn't used it to gain power. In, In all of his years of ministry, he hasn't taken bribes. He hasn't twisted Israel's justice system. And, and Samuel pushes this, he says this, and then he gives anyone who wants an opportunity to make an accusation or say what Samuel has done wrong. That's sometimes a scary thing for a leader to just openly say, who's got something to complain about me? <laughs> you know, that's a terrifying thing. And you can imagine Samuel has served Israel for years and years and years now. Over time, you would think that there's an opportunity that someone sees to criticize him right now. And nobody takes the opportunity. No one can accuse him of being a shepherd who is fleecing the flock or profiting off of God's children. Now, it might seem odd. Samuel is pretty defensive here, you know, but keep this in mind. Many of the judges who came before Samuel were most definitely not above suspicion. You you remember Gideon, right? Uh, Near the end of his time as a judge, he became sort of like a little king and he amassed power and authority for himself and for his son. 
Um, Israel as a people have seen these leaders who took advantage of the flock, which makes it even more important. Samuel makes very clear that is not him. Whatever it is that happened is not Samuel's fault. And uh, as a pastor, I I think one of the most upsetting things that I ever see, and I know um, other pastors can testify to this, and I'm sure Robert won't disagree with anything I'm going to say here, is that whenever you see another pastor in the news (laughs) arrested for wrongdoing, when a pastor is found to have mistreated the flock or used the church for unjust gain or abused parishioners or stolen from the people, whenever pastors are accused of serious sin, it is always a discouragement. It always grieves me as a pastor. Um, First and foremost, it's a discouragement to his church, but then there's a ripple effect outside of a minister's own church. Whenever shepherds are accused of abusing the flock, it reflects very poorly on all of us. It casts a shadow of suspicion even over innocent ministers. And by the way, this is part of the reason I love being a Presbyterian. Uh, I don't get tired of saying that I love being a Presbyterian because Presbyterianism keeps, it does, it's not that it keeps people from sinning, but it keeps ministers from dodging the results and the consequences of their sins. Um, when a uh, minister is accused of serious sin or when an, an, a minister admits to committing heinous public sin, sometimes congregations just don't have the will to remove the pastor for one reason or another. Sometimes after a long time, pastors can build up a great deal of goodwill to the point that if they say they're sorry, sometimes a church is fine with it. And yet in our system of church government, the pastor who can convince his church that all is fine will still likely not be able to convince the presbytery of the same thing. And this is why sometimes you'll see congregational churches around where pastors are accused and even indicted on serious crimes, and yet they remain in the ministry. If the congregation won't do something, then nothing is done at all in those instances, and then the result is that the church is degraded and it's brought to shame. I love being a Presbyterian. It's important that elders are able to hold one another accountable. The personal integrity of, of, of pastors matters. You may have heard of the Scottish minister, Robert Murray McShane. Uh, he died, I think, at the young age of 29 from tuberculosis. And he famously said that the greatest gift he could give his own congregation was his own personal holiness. And that has to do with the high calling of the pastor to be an example to the people of the church, which is terrifying when a pastor knows that he's a sinner. And so when we see others living the life of faith, this is the the logic of this, I think. When we see others living the life of faith, it makes us realize that we can do it too. And that's why pastoral integrity matters when it comes to leading the people of God. And that reminder is very sobering to me. The calling of the pastor and of the elders of the church is very high. What does Hebrews 13, 7 say? Remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That's a scary passage for anybody who's a Christian to read, but it's especially scary to be one of those people who is in the position where people are considering your way of life. They are considering your faith. They are supposed to at least be imitating your faith. Now, all pastors sin, and and that includes me. I I freely tell you that. And my family, the people who live with me all the time, 
uh, they could tell you that as well. So this is not a passage that calls for pastors to be sinless. And in fact, Samuel is not a sinless man uh, because sinless pastors and sinless prophets don't exist. But it is a dark mark on all pastors everywhere when men who were supposed to be shepherds, they end up falling into grave, serious, and public sin that ought to disqualify them from the ministry. Churches and elders who refuse to remove such a man from the ministry when he's disqualified himself, they bring shame upon their church and shame upon all other ministers everywhere. Samuel comes from a long line of those sort of leaders of the people. And yet he is at pains to highlight this. Whatever happened here, Samuel says, it wasn't because of me. It wasn't because you were poorly led. It wasn't because you were lacking in anything. God always cared for you. He always gave you what you needed. The problem is that you as a people became discontented with God's provision. See, the problem here was not Samuel. The problem here was Israel. So John Woodhouse says it. He says, the vindication of Samuel meant the indictment of the people. Somebody here is guilty and Samuel is saying, it is not me. This is raw unbelief and discontentment with the will of God for them. You see, Samuel has better things to do than brag about his own goodness. <laughs> and he's not interested in bragging about his own righteous deeds. Samuel is anticipating an argument here that we had to ask for a king because our situation was so bad. And Samuel is responding to that argument by laying before the people an accusation of his own. He says, things were fine before your discontentment struck. But before Samuel presses his case further, just note that by this point, Samuel is vindicated. Samuel is vindicated. Now, second, we see God's grace indicated in verses 6 to 18. Just now, we saw that Samuel's committed to shutting down the other avenues of blame that Israel might follow. Uh, We know that this wasn't Samuel's fault, but what about God? That's what Samuel turns to next. Now, keep this in mind. God's people have a history of blaming God for their sin. Uh, Think about the very first sin. Adam and Eve are in the garden, and what happens when they realize they're naked? God asks Adam, Who told you you were naked? And then Adam's response is to pass the blame. This woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit. There's a buried accusation here. She made me do it and you put her here. This is really your fault. And so you see this attitude in the life of Israel. It continues to manifest. It continues to show up. Oftentimes you see that the people will place the blame on God. You see this occasionally. Um, This attitude was part of the reason why God left them to wander in the wilderness, right? In Exodus, the people accuse God of being cruel to them. They say, why did you bring us out of Egypt just to die in the wilderness? They think God is mistreating them. They think he's treating them unjustly. They're accusing God of sin. And so because of this tendency in Israel, not just to accuse leaders, but maybe even God himself, Samuel comes to God's rescue, if you can say that in a manner of speaking, and he reminds them of God's constant, never-failing, nonstop grace toward them. Remember, God rescued them from Canaan, and he took them to the safety of Egypt for a season. And then when the slavery of the Egyptians was too much, God gave them Moses and Aaron to save them from Egypt. 
And then when they were wandering in the wilderness, he brought them to the land of Canaan. When the land of Canaan was dangerous and it was filled with Philistines, God raised up judges to deliver them. When the people recognized their sin, they cried out over and over and God saved them time and time again. Their whole story has been of people who deserved nothing and got everything. And then Samuel gets to this key moment in Israel's history. And in fact, it's their very recent history. He says, and when you saw Nahash, the king of the Ammonites came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. This is, this is the indictment right here. You had a king, he says. He delivered you ever since the days of your father, since the days of Abraham. And yet you got here and said, now he's going to stop. Do you see how damning this is? You had a king. You see, Samuel says, the problem isn't with me and it isn't with God. It is with you. And you've always been your worst problem. You get one little world leader like Nahash, who looks like all the other leaders who oppressed you uh, back during the judges, and you get scared, and you lose your nerve, and you forget the Lord your God. You are your own worst problem, Israel, and it's always been that way. It's easy to stand in judgment and sort of point at Israel and sort of shake our head, but... I've seen in my life that it doesn't take much for me to be filled with fear and anxiety. That's what Israel's been doing here. It doesn't take much for me to think in my heart, you know, he's carried me for 38 years, but now this little thing is just too much. It's the last straw. He had gave me provision for that and that and that, but he's not going to take care of this. You ever feel that anxiety? You think, oh, he's taking care of everything up to this point, but now he's going to stop for some arbitrary reason. Are you guilty of thinking this way? Then judge yourself first before you judge Israel. See, there's a problem here, but it isn't Samuel and it isn't God. The fault lies squarely with the people themselves. Third tonight, we see Israel dedicated. Sherlock Holmes famously said that when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Well, from Israel's perspective, I'm sure it seems improbable that they're the problem. That would be the last guess they would make. And so, you know, the problem is with Samuel or it's with his sons or it's with God. But Samuel has eliminated all of those things here. He's eliminated the impossible. Now, what is left? Israel is left. This is the truth. Israel has sinned. What do you do when you sin? You know, what do you do when you're confronted with sin? It's really easy to deflect. It's really easy to blame. It's easy to minimize. You know, oh, this is nothing. I can think of other people who've done far worse than this. You know, you minimize. It's easy to deny. You can say you didn't do anything at all. But the biblical response to sin and to being accused of our sin, to feeling guilty for our sin, to seeing our sin is to bow our head and say, I have sinned. 
We have to take responsibility. We have to be willing to say who we are, and we have to be willing to say what we've done. Samuel has robbed them of their avenues of escape. He's closed them in now. They can't blame. They can't minimize. So what happens? He's got them in the corner, and they confess. In verse 19, the people speak, and they say, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. Finally, they say it. Finally, they say it. We have sinned. We have added to our sins. Now, now here's the difficult thing about being confronted about your sin. In order to admit your sin, you need to know that there is grace waiting for you on the other side. Because if there's not, then you will keep fighting. Even if you're backed into the corner, you will do whatever you can to justify yourself, to make yourself feel better. But you need to know that when you confess your sin, there is grace there. Have you ever confessed your sin and then had someone not respond with grace? They didn't respond with grace even though you opened your soul to them or confessed your sin to them. Um, several years ago, a really painful experience happened, happened to me and my wife. We had a conflict with a neighbor. And, uh, and I had spoken with this neighbor. I had spoken to this neighbor's children, actually, and uh, about what I felt like was misbehavior. And I know now I should have talked to her. I should have talked to the mother but I didn't. I messed up. And I talked to her kids and I told them I thought they were acting up and what they were doing wasn't right. And uh, I wouldn't say I was scary or mean, but I should have talked to her. And, and she came to me and she told me, you know, you should have talked to me first. You should have let me settle this. You should have let me handle the situation. And she was very upset and she was, and she was right to be upset. And so I became very open and transparent and very vulnerable in that moment. And I said, I said, you are right. I said, I sinned against you. I should have talked to you. I shouldn't have talked to your kids. I shouldn't have even addressed them. I should have talked to you about it and let you handle it in in your own way as a parent. And, And I am very sorry. And then I asked her, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And I will never forget as long as I live after showing me just how upset she really was about the situation, she, she said, why are you telling me? You need to talk to God about it. So suddenly she was telling me that I was wrong and that there was no grace with her. She wouldn't forgive me because she said she had nothing to forgive. And she didn't want to admit that she had felt hurt by my actions. And so because of that, there was no healing. And it was sort of like she was saying, maybe God will forgive you, but I won't. That's sort of what was basically happening there. And there could be no healing. And that relationship was, was broken because she wouldn't forgive me. She didn't want to forgive me. And I had confessed my sin and I had found no grace when I confessed what I had done. It was very distressing. And I didn't expect it, to be honest. It was somebody else who was a Christian and was a church-going person. And I thought I would find grace when I confessed and when I asked forgiveness, and I didn't find it. And that, I just remember that moment sticking with me. I, I remember feeling distressed. I felt hollowed out. 
uh, I had made myself vulnerable and then had my face shoved in my own sin. Imagine if Israel had heard all of this from Samuel and then they said, you know what? We have sinned. We are wrong. And then suddenly God said, look somewhere else for grace. I have none for you. Just imagine that moment for Israel. Here's the good news. Our God is full of grace. Our God is full of grace. And he promises us that when we confess our sin, he won't shove our face in it. He promises us that he won't destroy us. He promises us that he won't hollow us out. He won't shame us. He won't empty us. Instead, he says in 1 John, he reminds us when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. Oh, what a promise. When we confess our sins against each other, we do need to show grace. But isn't it good to know that when we know we're guilty, we can go to God and he promises to show us grace. He promises it. He will not do that. He will not mistreat us. He will not bring us to that point of repentance and then drop us flat on the ground. Never, ever, ever. We don't have to fear that he's capricious. We don't have to fear that he'll, he'll push our face into our sin or rub our nose in it. We know what kind of a God he is because he has shown us and he has promised us repeatedly. When we talk about personal and church renewal, we see a picture of what's happening here tonight. This is a people who they finally see what they've done and they finally admit what they've done. This is a people who need to be forgiven And they know it. They know they need to be forgiven now. But if there's one more piece to the puzzle that they need, doesn't it have to be the presence of a mediator? You see that here. Look in verse 19. They say, pray for your servants to the Lord. They ask Samuel to pray for them to God. And then look at the response of Samuel. He says, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Think about this. Samuel should not be able to say both those things in the same sentence. Listen to it again. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. In a just universe, when you have done evil, you should be afraid. Yet Samuel says, don't be afraid. You've done evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. The mediator, in this case, is Samuel, right? In our case, the mediator is Christ. What did Christ do? Christ stood before the Father, and he still stands before the Father, and he pleads our case. Yes, they have sinned, but let me take their place. Let them walk without fear, Father. I will do it. There is no renewal without repentance, but there is also no renewal without a mediator. And so tonight, let's be grateful. Let's praise God for Jesus because he's our mediator. Set your eyes on Jesus this week. Make Jesus your hope. Make Jesus the one that steals away your fears so that you can hear the words of Jesus said to you. You have done all of this evil, but do not be afraid.
our Father, we thank you for the mediation of your Son who prays before you on our behalf. We thank you that his work as our mediator is perfect and that in your Son you have stolen every reason we have to ever be afraid. It is in Jesus' very name that we are able to pray. Amen. Let's respond to God's word this evening by singing number 308, Jesus paid it all. He is our mediator. He is our sacrifice. He is our high priest. And he is our security. So let's sing it out, uh, number 308.